listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis, adjunct instructor of rabbinics in the Jewish and Israel Studies program at the University of North Texas, and also Rabbi of Congregation Kol Ami in North Texas, and author of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism. Rabbi Jeff, welcome to our show. Shalom, Rav. Glad to be online with you. It's wonderful having you here. Um, for those who are listening, Rabbi Jeff came to our temple, Temple Beth Shalom, and gave an extraordinary presentation, partly based around your book. So let's start here. Your book is titled Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism. Why those things? Why do those things interest you? Well, so actually that was not the choice of title that I wanted, <laughs> but my publisher really liked it. Uh, you know, you've got the uh, the assonance and all the interesting alliterations going on. I, I wanted it to be Encyclopedia of Jewish Esoteric Knowledge, but be that as it may, uh, it actually makes a nice trifold way of thinking uh, about those things in Judaism that uh, might be described as not mainstream, but nevertheless highly influential. So uh, the first I uh, mentioned is myth, and myth is uh, a very misunderstood term in modern culture. We use the term myth in our everyday conversations to describe things that aren't true. Oh, that's a myth. But uh, I believe that the best understanding of a myth is something that is true all the time, that happens all the time. It is some kind of narrative that helps us orient ourselves uh, to the human experience, uh, to our relationship to the natural and metaphysical world, and helps us understand ourselves in a, I don't know, trans-intellectual way about uh, the truths of who we are. Not factual. A myth is not factual, but it is truthful. The second element that I talk about is magic. And magic, again, is a word uh, that is problematic in English. It is used in a pejorative way in a lot of things. It's also uh, easily confused with stage magic. Uh, uh, another term from another scholar, uh, uh, Rabbi Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca uh, Lysis, uh, talks about uh, deeds of power. And uh, indeed, she's almost literally translating the Hebrew word masot, uh, deeds, uh, which is often used in Jewish literature to refer to not ordinary stuff, not just the things we do, but extraordinary deeds. And uh, the third term, mysticism, is every bit as ambiguous as the other two. Uh, we all have a sense that, you know, well, mysticism is a little bit like obscenity. We have a hard time defining it, but we know it when we see it. 
And uh, I happen to think that it is uh, ultimately a threefold thing that involves uh, uh, engagement with the Godhead, understanding the Godhead, and uh, trying to experience the Godhead. So uh, actually, myth and uh, magic, uh, in some sense, fall under the categories of um, mysticism, but I don't want to... I don't want to com- overly complicate things. Uh, uh, I would say mysticism represents uh, those efforts, as uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel once said, to experience uh, the divine present uh, in the whole wheat of experience without the millstones of reason grinding it to pieces. I, I love the way that you've described these. You've, you've, you've shared so much that I have so many questions already. You shared shared, um, this idea when you said mysticism, you said like obscenity, it's hard to define it, but you know it when you see it. The irony is, of course, that that is very much socially determined. You know, for some people, for some people, obscenity is, you know, somebody showing their ankles. Um, So, so can mysticism change with social development, social change, or is there a... Is there an overarching, an absolute un, uh, mystical experience, or is all mysticism relative? Ah, well, that's a good question. I think that mysticism, in its most general sense, is a transcultural phenomenon. I think virtually all uh, human cultures, particularly traditional human cultures, have some aspect of mysticism, uh, and that would be Evelyn Underwood, who would argue for the universality of it. However... I do agree with uh, the great uh, Jewish mystic scholar uh, Gershom Sholem that it is all socially referenced. And so uh, while a Christian might have a mystical experience that reveals to them the Holy Family or Jesus or, uh, you know, the Mother of God, uh, Jewish mystics are always going to have their mystical experience framed by Jewish points of reference, whether it be something as abstract as light or whether it be something as seemingly corporeal as a divine throne or a uh, celestial chariot. So I I do believe it's socially bound, and I also believe that it is time-bound in regard to the fact that I don't know that many modern Jews are going to have a mystical experience which involves seeing the the sacred chariot. I think that's a point of reference from an ancient uh, Jewish point of view, and we don't really uh, reference the transcendent in those kinds of images anymore. So uh, how we perceive God or the divine or uh, the absolute, however you want to define it, has changed in time. And that is definitely socially determined. I, I love the way you're describing this, the universality of mystical experience, however, you know, albeit socially referenced, thereby sort of expressing itself in differing ways in different communities. I, I'm right. challenged by when you say we we don't share these metaphors uh, of experience anymore. Is that something, yeah. you know, and we obviously have met perhaps different metaphors. Is that something that we've lost or is that something that we've gained? Uh, lost is a, uh, is a particularly final word. Right. And I'm not sure that uh, I, uh, I agree with that. Uh, you know, the, uh, the ancient 
metaphor of the Merkava, the divine chariot, uh, envisioning God uh, upon a instrument of ancient elites is something we don't do anymore. Um, that being said, the word is still used in a metaphysical sense. We use the word Merkava in Jewish tradition to refer to our sense of the full Godhead, uh, all the I don't know what the word is. Yeah, this is what happens when you start talking about God. Right. All the divine apparatus, the, uh, uh, the multi-dimensions of God is expressed in Jewish tradition with the term Merkava. Um, uh, that being said, it, uh, you know, it, uh, it, that is the language of the learned. And a, uh, a Jew in the pews uh, may not come away from something and say, oh, I just witnessed the Merkava. But uh, a lot of uh, educated Jews will, in fact, use that metaphor, even though it's ancient and in some ways something of a broken metaphor. So right at the very beginning of what you shared, you said you were, you were hoping for, I think you said Encyclopedia of Esoteric Knowledge as, as your right. title. What, what does esoteric knowledge mean in the sense of, for us, most knowledge in society today is science-based or fact-based. Right. So what, right. what to you is esoteric knowledge? Well, so uh, that's always a tough one. Uh, um, uh, exoteric is uh, commonly shared knowledge. Uh, if we were to use the, uh, the analogy to science, commonly shared knowledge is what you and I learned by the time we finished high school. Uh, esoteric knowledge is knowledge that may be reserved for or understandable only for a selected group, usually an elite. Uh, and uh, the idea that it's esoteric isn't means that not everyone's going to get it, not everyone should get it, uh, that uh, there are uh, complications or risks involved in it. And uh, in the earliest Jewish literature, uh, you know it's esoteric when one of the figures in the uh, writing will say, now I'm going to tell you a secret, or God or an angel will share with the interlocutor in the story and say, I am revealing to you this secret. Now, the funny thing about that, of course, is the secret is written in this book. Right. So... In another sense, the only, the only elite thing that you have to have to know this information is to be literate. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a term of art, but it's something that is not easily within our grasp. Again, if I go back to the analogy of physics, I think we all understand the essential structure of an atom. But how many of us can really talk effectively and clearly with true understanding about string theory right. or about um, uh, probabilities of location or many of the things that actually are so central uh, to our modern understanding of physics. Most of us just don't get it. And uh, either we're not willing to put in the uh, mind energy to understand it or no aspersion on anybody, we just can't. Right. Uh, it's, it's something only graspable by a select group of people. 
So That's then, esoteric. So let me ask, before we take our break, let me ask, you've mentioned a couple of times a sort of distinction. You mentioned the Jew in the pew and then the, the learned, and you've mentioned about right. elites and so on. And uh, the way you described it when you said, you know, the Jew in the pew might not describe it as the Merkava, but somebody more in the know or, or might say that. Is my, my understanding of mysticism, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, mm-hmm. is, is that it isn't elite-based. It, it isn't elitist because it's the immediate presence. And so when you say it's, when you say it's, it's socially referenced, um, an elite may socially may, may refer to it in one particular way, right. but somebody could turn around and say, no, it really wasn't Amerikava. I really didn't right. say that. So is, 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 it, is it elitism? So, uh, okay, look at it. It's an experience accessible to anyone. Right. Uh, how it is framed and how we understand it uh, is often determined by our uh, social class uh, and our knowledge base. So, for example, Michael Schwartz has focused on and written a great deal about Jewish scholastic magic. That is, uh, the uh, writings about... Uh, practices, amulet writing, uh, you know, the control of angels that are described in uh, certain kinds of literature that throughout the Middle Ages would only have been transmitted by making a copy of it uh, by hand and would have passed from one elite reader to another. At the same time, uh, at the same period of time and always in Jewish history, there has been what I would characterize as shamanic magic. That is, the uh, practices that uh, Jews in the pews, or if we go back to the Talmudic period before there were any pews whatsoever, uh, Jews in the congregation uh, would have um, been drawn to whether it be for a actual mystical experience or whether it was they were attempting to tap into uh, divine powers uh, that they would have appealed to. And it would have been different. So, you know, we, uh, we know quite a bit because their imprint and their exist as physical objects, we know a great deal about uh, Jewish scholastically written amulets. Uh, the, the materials they're on have survived. We see them. We can read them. Uh, we understand how they're thinking about them. On the other hand, the Talmud talks about uh, the common practice of having what could best be described as a medicine bag uh, that a Jew might carry a little pouch that might have in it uh, the tooth of an unusual animal and some herbs and an object that maybe uh, they felt signified something uh, extraordinary, and that this would serve them in the same capacity, effectively, as the written amulet would for someone who was of more of elite status. I think this is fascinating. These parallels go on, and again, uh, it's not as if Judaism has one standard way of doing this. This is true of all of Judaism. As you know, uh, that we have to, uh, we have many different traditions that flow together, uh, and that they uh, are quite diverse, and they depend on geography, time, and uh, the particular segment of the Jewish community you belong to. So we are a diverse tradition, 
We are a uncentralized tradition, and uh, that makes for a multiplicity of mechanisms for mystical experience, uh, magical performance, and we have varied myths depending on uh, who we are and and what what rabbis we talk to, what literature we read, um, whether we trust our grandma more than we (laughs) trust our rabbi, those sort of things. I, I would. So we have to t- <laughs> we have to take a break, um, uh, but we- I'd really like to. Since you mentioned shamanism, I really like to come back to that in terms of its connection with Judaism. Absolutely. You've been listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis, author of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis, author of Jewish Myth, Magic and Mysticism. And before the break, Rabbi Jeff was sharing with us the different understandings of myth, magic and mysticism. And you mentioned shamanism. And I know you came to Temple Beth Shalom and gave an extraordinary presentation on this. You know, could you just for a little while, could you just share your understanding of the of how shamanism connects to Judaism in your in your opinion? Sure. So in its most narrow term, shamanism, uh, you probably took anthropology classes as I did in when you were in college, uh, refers to uh, uh, certain practices by tribal societies in Siberia. However, it has been generalized to describe what might be pre-technological or even pre-literate uh, uh, practices that uh, fall into the range of the esoteric or uh, the magical. And uh, I don't think that's limited to Siberia. I think that that's a universal human experience, and it's actually a fairly accessible aspect of traditional Jewish practice. Uh, I, I like to joke that we're, uh, you know, that we're aborigines in athletic suits, that uh, to be Jewish is, quite frankly, more than to be part of a uh, shared uh, religious ideology. In fact, it's very hard to say that Jews do share a religious ideology. We have many different uh, emphasis and focus in our traditions. Uh, Even if we share a central object like the Torah, uh, the way we read it is so different. The way we understand what it asks of us can be so different uh, that uh, what we have really is the fact that before we were ever at Mount Sinai, before we were uh, called to covenant, before we received a written Torah, we were tribes, we were clans, uh, we were uh, the uh, West Asian equivalent of the Navajos. And uh, as a result, uh, we have always been on a twofold track as a people. 
Uh, and uh, while it's convenient here in America to describe us as religion, uh, we are equal part ethnicity and an ethnicity that goes back a long time. And you really only have to just scratch the surface of Jewish tradition, whether it be the Torah or the rest of the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, or uh, the rabbinic tradition, and there you see it. You see, um, you know, rabbis who on one level are lawyers, but on another level are magicians. Uh, and you can see uh, the rhetoric of the Bible talking about the idea that the entire universe is sentient, and it talks. Right. And communicates. There's a degree of animism preserved in the Hebrew Bible uh, that uh, sometimes makes uh, moderns a little uncomfortable when they read it. And we metaphorize that that kind of material away, so that we often don't recognize it precisely for what it is. So when the um, when the Bible is saying the heavens declare the glory of your works, you're you're saying it really is the heavens. Glory of God, right? Uh, there. Uh, they say no words, they have no speech, and yet their message goes across the universe. Um, fantastic example. Actually, excellent. You pulled that right out of uh, nowhere. That was a great <laughs> example of that. We have trees that sing, we have animals that praise, uh, we have mountains uh, that worship. Uh, this rhetoric is right there in front of us. And uh, we prefer to see it as poetic artistry, which it is, but that doesn't mean it ceases to lose its more literal meaning. The famous saying in Jewish interpretation is, what is it? Uh, uh, no interpretation can completely depart from its peshat, right. from its obvious meaning. And that's happening all the time throughout the first thousand fifteen hundred years of Jewish literature. We've we've got about five minutes left. I'm I'm thinking when you were talking about um, the rabbis being lawyers, but also being sort of magicians and shamans in some sense. I w I was drawn to the story of Choni, the circle drawer. Oh yeah, um, the Classic. idea. Right. So the idea of Choni, who um, they need rain, and so they turn to Choni, and Choni draws a circle and says to God, "I'm I will not move from this circle until it rains." And there's a tiny drop of rain, and Choni right. says, "No, not this kind of rain. You know, the proper kind of rain." And then right. suddenly, so suddenly, the heavens open and everything floods, and Choni says, "No, not this kind of rain either, but but somewhere in the middle." Right. Is that is that to you a story of sort of um, the the shamanistic element? in Judaism? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, it illustrates the importance of the idea that God is a comedian with an audience that's afraid to laugh. Uh, oh, but, I love uh, that. The, uh, uh, the idea that uh, our righteous leaders, that our most inspired people uh, can tap into the hidden forces of the universe is a very ancient one. Hani is a great example. Hanina Bendosa uh -huh. doesn't get as much uh, uh, PR uh, from the Talmud, but he is also another wonder-working rabbi of the Talmudic period. And, of course, even people like uh, Shimon Bar Yochai right. uh, are able to do amazing things. Uh, so uh, this, uh, this tradition is all over the place in Jewish uh, tradition. And then if we go back to the prophets, you, you see the prophets do amazing things, and sometimes uh, rare, 
uh, you know, I always recall the famous story where uh, 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 Saul has lost his oxen, uh-huh. and his servant turns to him and says, hey, there's a man of God named Samuel living nearby. I bet he can help us find them. And uh, basically, you would go to one of these men of God, and they'd help you find your car keys. <laughs> so, you know, these, uh, this is uh, deeply rooted in Israelite and later Jewish tradition. So, look, we've got just a few minutes left, and you said a most extraordinary phrase. God is comedian with an audience afraid to laugh. In, in, right. in three minutes... Tell us about that, because I think that's a, that's a, a, a stunning statement about um, a, a stunning theological statement. God is comedian with an audience afraid to laugh. T- tell us what you mean by that in, in three minutes. Right. So, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to uh, evade the fact that sometimes in the Bible we describe God as having human body parts, eyes, ears, hands, things like this. Uh, equally problematic from a philosopher's point of view is that God is anthropopathic, yep. that God has emotions. Uh, and yet, again and again, whether we can say that that is literally accurate or that's a metaphor, uh, the fact of the matter is both uh, the biblical authors and the sages of the ancient world understood that God laughs, cries, feels disappointment, uh, and uh, ranges over uh, the kinds of human emotions that we can relate to. Right. And in some ways, human emotions are scary, so we would prefer God not to be angry. Uh, But at the same time, it helps us appreciate what God is asking of us and what God thinks of us to hear that God laughed, Uh, that when we did something, God was amused, Uh, as is in the famous argument between the sages in Baba Metziah 59. Uh, where uh, Elijah was asked, what was the reaction to this really crazy argument? And, uh, the, uh, and Elijah, in his, uh, in his wanderings, is encountered, and he says, oh, when, when that argument was done, God laughed, and he said, my children have outwitted me, my children have outwitted me, like any proud parent would do. Right. I, I really I really like that because um, because so often theology, especially as it becomes more modern, becomes um, very emotionless, and God becomes that yes. perfect God um, beyond emotion, beyond accessibility. I think about Maimonides, um, where you can't even describe God; you can only say what God right. is not. And so, how could you even affect God? But I love the right. I, I love what you shared here today because what you're what I experience from what you're talking about is is that experience with God and that experience of the other that takes us outside our normal sort of scientific paradigm I guess and and our, our very um, our very commonly shared knowledge to that um, to experiencing a different kind of knowledge and I so I just I want to say how much I really appreciate you you sharing all this today and, and oh absolutely even though absolutely. even I mean, though we're out of time I would say the unique thing about Judaism is we don't really have systematic theology right. and it's rather abstract what we have is a relationship And just as you don't always understand the people you're in relationship with, but you still have a relationship, you we can have a relationship with God without fully understanding 
who or what God is. I, I love that. What a wonderful closing sentence. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis, author of Jewish Myth and Magic and Mysticism. Thank you so much for coming on our show. I really it's appreciate it. It's been a delight uh, talking with you yet again. Absolutely. Uh, I Thank hope you. we have future conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Please feel free to come back onto our show and share more about magic, mysticism, the mind-body problem, and, and much, much more. Very good. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>